Today is part two of the Russian novel, The Master and Margarita. This part two combines the shenanigans of part one with the love story of our title characters. We're sure glad this survived the Stalin era, even as it satirized Stalin himself. Why? Let's read it together. Subscribe and rate the show. Today in Moscow, Russia, The Master and Margarita. Read the world. You're listening to Paperbacker Podcast. Where are we going again? I told you, to meet Igor, Roman, and his two friends. Oh, look, a rare book room. Uh, we're already running late. We can see it later. I don't think so. Paige, wait! Uh, we don't have time. Fine. Just don't talk to strange book collectors. Okay, let's see. Where are they? Oh, there they are. Hey, guys. Sorry I'm late, Paige. Really had to go see the rare book collection, um, but I'm here. Now, Igor and Roman, I already know you two from uh, book one, part one of uh, The Master and Margarita, but I'm really happy to meet your two friends here. Let me introduce myself. My name's Jake, and uh, you are? Hello. My name is uh, Bair. I am from Russia. Uh, I born in Irkutsk. Uh, it's uh, in uh, East Siberia. If you see on the map, it's like middle of Russia. And so then this must be your son, right? Oh, yes. Hello. My name is Maxim. I'm also from Russia. Yeah, right. And it sounds like you guys grew up in a very interesting place. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of America playing football in the in the yard and street hockey. I'm sure it's uh, quite different from yours, right? I, I was born in the USSR and uh, I uh, spent my childhood in, in the village near Irkutsk, 100 kilometers away. And it uh, was uh, kind of a farm life. I spent a lot of time in a big valley and in the forest. I like nature. Yeah, then I back to a uh, city. Yeah, then I goes to university and I graduated uh, by physics. It was very difficult time for Russia because it was 90s after the Soviet Union fell down and 15 republic became separated. It's the biggest part of this country named USSR became 15 countries and one of these is Russia. It was a very difficult time for our family and for, for all country, for all people, because we don't have uh, money, we don't have any enough resources to invest money, no business. It was so difficult time. Finally, now the country is changed. I guess it is famous for um, if you're a tourist, right? Obviously, Moscow would be like number one place to visit if you're in Russia. So lots of uh, famous landmarks, including the Kremlin. So I saw that. I saw the Kremlin. And then uh, not sure if I've, if I've uh, visited those places that, that were mentioned in, in the novel. Like what, what was one of those places, the streets, the art street? I think I've visited, right? Because it's, it's pretty famous. But like I said, I don't have any photos or memories, like uh, distinct memories, right? Also, one thing you notice, too, when you read this book is just how big Moscow is. Yeah, yeah, that's like the subway probably like is the uh, a good 
visual representation of the scale, I guess, right? Because you, when you look at the map, right, the subway map, and it's just like there's so many like lines, so many you know subway stops. And when you when I first looked at it, they're like, oh my god, it looked like a maze, like a spider web, you know. Actually, you know, like Moscow, like Moscow subway, like the layout is, I guess, they kind of looked it in advance. So now it's like with with time, it's of course it started with one two line first, right, as usual, and then they started to add more lines, more stations. But they, I guess they like they thought it through in, in like in advance because like if you see the map of the like Moscow subway, it's kind of organized in like convenient way. I, guess, I don't know. So it's more like circle, circle, circles. Because there's a special like line that connects all the lines. So it's a circle, and then like uh, the other lines are like crossing each other's. Is XX, you know what I mean? So it's like a spider web, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like spider web. So I think it's like kind of cool way to build a subway. Sometimes, you know, you ride these city trains, you find really weird kind of people on them. Probably you, you find those closer to like, you know, public places, like the crowded places. But yeah, definitely lots of, lots of homeless, like just drunks, you know, drunk people. Drinking vodka. Yeah, and drinking vodka, sleeping on the on the floor. Yeah, probably not not the safest place to be at night. Adam. Exactly. Yeah, and like Moscow subway, like the, you know Russian people, they really love like soccer. And when there's a like big game, until so that night, you better not take subway or just like probably just stay home because like fans, they just like really violent. If they, for example, if their team loses, Moscow City loses, and then like everyone just go nuts. So. Yeah, in some way they're just crushing the like the cars inside, like inside the subway. That's like uh, Vancouver when the Vancouver hockey team got like kicked out of the playoffs or lost the Stanley Cup. They rioted and destroyed the city. So I'd have to worry about that and all the stray dogs and cats running around the city. Maybe not in the Moscow, but then like maybe somewhere outside of it, like. Near the countryside. Oh, okay. So pro- it's more of a countryside, maybe problem. Yeah, wolves. I would say. Yeah, <laughs> Max, those aren't dogs; those are wolves. Do you know that cats are not tigers? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's something new. <laughs> First character we're introduced to is Margarita. Margarita is 30 years old, beautiful, intelligent, and childless, and apparently is a woman many other women would want to be. Her husband is a prominent specialist, young, handsome, good, and honest, and loved Margarita immensely. It should have been a wonderful life, but it isn't enough for poor Margarita who has remained unhappy since being married at age 19. Even the narrator says, quote, Gods, gods, what did this woman need? Unquote. She is unhappy because she is desperately longing for the reunion of her lost love, the master. Margarita will have to prove herself worthy to the devil by attending his ball as queen and host. Book two begins. What a whiner, right? Oh, I got so much money and a husband that loves me, everything, but I'm not happy. (laughs) 
She's sitting there drinking vodka and wine and stuff. Think of Ivan from book one and all the village people who lost their clothes and money and or there's that one guy who got turned into a vampire. Now those are real problems. Yours, Margarita, are not real problems. Yeah, definitely she's uh, not, I think she's uh, easygoing in terms of, I guess, you know, uh, she's not, she's not like, yeah, lifestyle. She's, she's probably not, not very, uh, what's the word, traditional, right? Or conservative type of woman, right? Uh, she probably likes, enjoys company of men and just partying and stuff like that. <laughs> you think so? Uh, it seems like, yeah. It's just, you know, it's just the way she looks at things. I don't know. Because like there's, there's this uh, sort of uh, the wild side, I think, that is kind of hidden inside of her. And when she meets like the devil and yeah. Now, Bulgakov, he writes about her because it sounds like it's very similar in his own life because he had more. He had a wife and then he like met another wife. To me, she's just awfully dramatic. Think about this, right? She's been married to somebody like doesn't matter for many years, right? But then, you know, years later, that passion sort of burns out and then you meet another person. Boom. Sparks, sparks go off, right? You know, you kind of move on to the next person, so to speak, right? I don't know. It's not, it's not ideal, but that at the same time, what can you do? You know, those things happen. And it seems like he tries to make it sound romantic. But no, but they kind of he remember the first time when uh, when the master talked to like Ivan in the in the this crazy house when he described the their <laughs> first meeting house. with Margarita, right? He told to Ivan that it was like real true love. So before that, it was like all just like just fake love or whatever. So they like immediately they understood that they were like They're like a soulmate. I like how you say soulmate when usually we have the devil and usually people sell their souls to the devil. Yeah, and that's well, that's what she does, right? Uh, in, in the end, ultimately, that's she sells. Well, not to find a love, but save her love, I guess, right? That's what she does. But at the same time, like the master was married before too. Yeah, he had the first wife, and he doesn't even remember her name, and it's, it was kind of like really <laughs> strange. How can you not remember your wife's name? Like, like <laughs> it's strange. Point. Yeah, well, he's also a guy who calls himself the master. I'm, I'm the master. I mean, that insult, that's itself is kind of weird. So maybe he's in the crazy house for more than one reason. Probably the author didn't want to give him a, like a, a face, a name. Yeah, he represents every single author who tried to, you know, work in the same, in the same way or create the same type of literature, sort of rebellious literature at that, at that time when the government were like anti-government sort of, sort of propaganda literature, which, you know, government tried to silence those sort of uh, writers, right? And Bulgakov, the author, was one of those guys in real life. So yeah, so I feel like uh, name is not important because he just represents everyone, right? It's a collective name. Do you think Russia still has those rebel writers that get suppressed? Probably, yes. I wouldn't be surprised, you know. But especially these days, like, the more more... Like bloggers and YouTubers. Yeah, some people call like there. There was like a certain period of time. It was called like golden age, where all the uh, like authors, like writers, they were like writing really good books. They were actually like based on the things that were going on in Russia, because like it's been like going through like hard times, which really influenced the containment. Yeah, which would be this book would be one of those examples, right? Yeah, so like I would say, all the changes that Russia has made through the period of time has reflected on the book 
um, on what they were writing about. So where's the book that I can read that talks about Pushkin? Or not Pushkin, uh, Putin. <laughs> you know? Where's the where's the Master and the Margarita like book two <laughs> sequel for Putin, right? I've got an opinion on that because like back then it was pretty much forbidden to write uh, something bad about government or its system because you know you would like get sent to like prison camp or you would get killed or something but nowadays as you said like why you don't see like any novels about uh, Putin it's because society has changed and now it's not really a big deal to write about something like bad or like criticizing government system because you would like guess you would get like less punishment you would either get punishment or you would get no punishment I would say it just depends on what kind of influencer you are. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Uh, you can be critical against the government nowadays. It sounds like you're saying that, you know, you can pretty much say what you want. Yes, because like uh, considering nowadays, like back then, it was like writers and uh, authors that were expressing or like criticizing the government or its system or their leaders or just the society in general. Uh, but now uh, I think... It has changed in, I would say, singers and rappers took over, took over this role to criticize or like uh, express something from people. Speaking of like, yeah, government censoring stuff, the developments regarding that, that SNS app, right? TikTok, what, what, what are some reasons for them blocking that app in, in the United States? Because they're scared of China, right? Spying on US citizens, stuff like that. So I don't know the TikTok thing. I personally hate TikTok. I think it's just... I've never used it. Really, I just think you know, it's dumb. I've never cared for it, yeah. yeah. And I've <laughs> seen it. It seems like just short clip videos. How, how is it different from uh, Instagram? Like, it's the same thing, right? You just post videos, short videos, right? I don't know. Before that, I remember there was Vine. Yeah, it's like same stuff, but <laughs> different name, right? With all this, I guess Bulgakov is teaching us one thing. Uh, one, if you find your true soulmate, go for it regardless if you're already married. Because according to him, marriage is overrated. True love is not. Margarita remembers that night she saw him. That horrible moment when he burned his manuscript of the novel about Jesus and Pontius Pilate. The next morning, he was gone. Now, Margarita, though miserably married to that rich husband who adores her, wakes up this present morning with the sudden faith that the master and her will be reunited. Her servant Natasha comes in then and excitedly tells her about the naked people in the streets after the magic show. Margarita finds it hilarious and a bit unbelievable, so she leaves the house and gets on a bus and rides down the Arbat, a long popular street in Moscow. On the bus, she overhears a conversation of a scandalous act. Someone had stolen the head of Berlotz from the coffin before the large funeral service. The thought and sight of the funeral procession that is now proceeding down Arbat Street reminds her of reuniting with the master again. Really, she says, I would pawn my soul to the devil to find out whether he is alive or dead. And suddenly, Azazello appears right next to her, to offer her just that chance. Ah, Arbot Street. Yeah, I've heard of that. 
Although I haven't had a chance to walk down it yet. Actually, in uh, in Moscow, two Arbat streets. It's like old Arbat Street and new Arbat Street. Very fancy names. Yeah, Arbat. <laughs> the new Arbat was built uh, maybe not after Stalin, Stalin, in Stalin era. And he made uh, this straight street from Kremlin to his uh, outdoor house outside of Moscow. It's like straight street. Oh, wow. It's straight street to go from his work to his uh, house. Every every day he coming by his uh, limousine to Kremlin and uh, after his job he goes to his, his house. That's why they built... So it's like just Stalin's personal street. Yeah, house. right. And he may, made this street. The history of this New Orbat, it's, it's called New, New Orbat, the buildings, the old buildings, was there on the, this uh, straight line of the under construction. They be, their building was removed from this street. Maybe you just uh, <laughs> confused about uh, they moved to for tanks, but it actually was for his uh, Stalin period. But actually, it's uh, it used to be for tanks after Second World War. Protect Kremlin and for you know Parat. It's very very uh, wide street. Many skyscrapers. Not like skyscrapers, but very high high tall buildings there. Very nice architecture. Yeah, it's very nice. Very good place. Good street for have some good dinner. Many restaurants, clubs, or bars. Yeah. If you compare with uh, old older but old but it looks like a very old street buildings are from uh, 19th century design like old barocco style french italian style if it has those different influences on it that's always like the most fun part about traveling or walking down a road is like seeing the old architecture versus the new even more interesting is the deal that Azazello offers margarita Let's take a look at that now as we continue our story. Out of the corner of her eye, Margarita notices a man named Latunsky, one of the harshest literary critics who ruined the master's work and labeled him an outcast. Her hate for him fuels her desire to join Azazello and be reunited with the master. Azazello provides exciting news that the master is still alive. In order for her to gain audience with Voland, she must first follow a set of instructions. The instructions are for her to put on a special cream that Azazello gives her. As the readers of this book might have expected, she'll have to be naked, as seems to be a motif in this book. She'll do this at a specific time and must arrive at a specific meeting place by a specific hour. Azazello then disappears. Later that night, in her lavish rich bedroom, Margarita puts on the cream, and it is indeed a magical cream. Looking in the mirror, Margarita sees herself transform and become intensely beautiful and at least 10 years younger. The cream also makes her able to float in the air easily. She leaves a note on her husband's desk, quote, Forgive me and forget me as quickly as you can. I'm leaving you forever. Do not search for me. This would be useless. I have become a witch. From all the trials and tribulations that befell me, time to go. Farewell. Unquote. 
Natasha suddenly bursts into the room and sees Margarita and is astonished. But Margarita is kind and shares the cream with Natasha, then departs from the house flying on a broomstick. Yeah, nowadays we'd probably just write a text or something, not a letter. But that must be the worst goodbye letter ever written, right? If I was her husband and I read this, I think I'd think my wife was like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs after that. Honestly, that might work. I mean, she'll be probably considered pretty crazy and then she'll get sent to the crazy house and then she'll meet the master again. So, I mean, it kind of works for her if she if she wants to take that route. I think this person, the, her husband, sounds like he's kind of smart guy. Maybe he like kind of kind of expected. He, I don't think he was kind of surprised, surprised by this letter. He was just like, oh, so this coming eventually. But maybe at the same time, the 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 way she wrote this this letter, he thought probably she she was drunk again. <laughs> he was like, no, no, but she was. Uh, it was uh, when she used the the magic cream, right? The ointment thing, or cream, whatever, and that made her like brought out the wild. Yeah, yeah. So probably if I was the the one who wrote the who read who read this letter, I always thought, well, probably she was drunk. I wouldn't. Uh, kind of think that she actually would say goodbye to me like this, like this easy way. So, in my opinion, like she wrote it because she's already like she's become the witch when she made the deal with the devil, right? And she put that uh, cream all over her body, which make her invisible and fly. So she's kind of big. She's became the witch at that point, and we didn't get much character development for the husband, right? We've never actually met him as a character in the book, right? He's He was mentioned a couple of times, but then we don't really see him. So I feel like, I don't know, at least me, I didn't feel it bad for, for this guy because I, I never got to see him. And last thing, she did try to say go back back and say goodbye when they were about to like go. Like she she was about to like stay with the master and she was planning to go back and say goodbye. She's like, Oh, like I respect him. This is the least I can do. So she wanted to go back home at night and maybe in the morning like explain. But yeah, like it doesn't seem like she was a bad wife per se for him. But she was not happy though, yeah, but not bad wife. Yeah, and the thing is, she got married really young. She got married at 19. Who gets married at 19 anymore? I can't imagine what that wedding would have been like, too. The Russian weddings is a pretty big party for at least two days. Two days long for a wedding? Yeah, it's at least. It's crazy. The first day, it's a party in a, with a husband family. And second day, it's party with a wife family. Every time, it's like... A, yeah, it's uh, it's not like a separate. It's uh, together. And by it's like it depends husband uh, house and uh, wife's house. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> that sounds exhausting. <laughs> yeah, right. It's traditional. Yeah, that sounds pretty uh, extreme. <laughs> we only do one day. I think we only do like four hours in in the states. <laughs> and you're talking about doing two days. Yeah, it's closer to uh for the most part it's closer to western style because the main thing the main thing about the wedding is the party so they rent normally they would rent like a banquet hall and then like they're gonna like set up a bunch of tables and fill it with like food alcohol like mu- light, live music and then there would be like an mc right like a host they just go through whatever they've planned for the wedding 
what are the uh, what are the typical drinks that you get served at a wedding? Because open bar is a big thing. Oh, there's only one. So is it just vodka, vodka, vodka? <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the normally, yeah. But it, it all leads to like it leads to one point. At some point, everybody gets shit faced, and you know it could get crazy. Those weddings. Yeah, Ru- Russians' wedding are famous for like fights. They say there's a like you know the saying. It's not a wedding if there's no fight. So there should be a fight by the end of the ceremony. People get drunk and usually like, you know, opposite families, they like kind of you know, try to insult each other and they fight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any fights at your weddings? Uh, yeah, because I got drunk. I got drunk pretty fast. So I just, I wasn't, I wasn't able to, you know, hold up my fists because I was like, I just passed out. <laughs> No, no, there, there was, a, there was, a, there was an angry dude though. I remember people telling me later there was almost a fight. I guess, right? My cousin had a fight at his wedding. We had no fights at my wedding. My, my wedding was way too family friendly. Yeah, it was some guy. I don't know where he came from. He was like a friend. He wasn't supposed to be there, and then he came. He was wearing jeans. <laughs> Nobody wanted him there, <laughs> and then they, they, somebody got in his face eventually, and then uh, they fought, and then he like ran off down the street. <laughs> it's really weird. Like I remember, I was on one wedding in Uzbekistan. There was no fight, but the the groom got so hammered <laughs> that he puked behind his table. Like he like ran out first. Like he probably he was looking where to puke. Then he understood that it was too far for him to go out, to, like to the bathroom water. So he like <laughs> turned around and go back up, up behind his table and puked. <laughs> so like everyone saw it like because they, they they table the main table is right in the like center usually so it was kind of embarrassing <laughs> yeah that would be really embarrassing you don't want that are most of the weddings um christian based type of weddings like uh you know like because like uh obviously i mean most of them are right you got a priest usually you have like a priest that does it or something but yeah maybe like if you're like the you know the daughter of a priest or something maybe for the most part, people just they don't do that ceremony though. I don't know. Maybe maybe like things changed. Maybe like now the way most weddings are conducted, maybe they include that part in the ceremony, right? Like you know they do vows and I pronounce you blah blah blah. But as far as I know, like it's just they sign the papers beforehand, obviously, and then it's just it's just mostly it's just the party, right? The wedding ceremony is just one huge party. That's really all people want. And then you can't get married if you're gay, right? There's no gay weddings or trans weddings or, mm-hmm. you know, Z Z weddings or. <laughs> yeah, it's illegal. I I saw it on the internet. Some guy like married on sex doll in Russia. Oh yeah, there was a woman who uh, married a roller coaster. Yeah, so basically, you like you can marry anything, dogs, like whatever roller coaster, like computer, doll, but not gay people. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty weird, man. Can uh can gay people like get get like a partnership certificate or something? You know, can they like so can how close can they get to being married? Is it just pretty much there's no way to do anything? No, it's it's just illegal to be gay. Uh, they find ways to meet, I guess, and then they they still might you know be together, live together, but they wouldn't just be open about it, I guess, right? Did you know anybody growing up? I didn't know personally, but I didn't think it's hard, like, cause like there obviously there there are gay people, right? And uh, there are probably like also gay clubs too, I assume. 
I guess maybe like most people like will not like you know like neighbors they will not like see gay people and the like, call police right you you have to be like really crazy person like I know a gay person who's an American but he moved to Russia to work as a teacher I guess so and he was like openly gay when he was in Korea I I, I assume like he wouldn't he wouldn't hide it you know he's that kind of person who just would not restrict himself you know what I mean so. But like about the like getting married at that age when you fall in love, you kind of the love is like one hundred percent pure. You you think you will get married with this person, whatever. But like when you get older, you meet other people. You also fall in love in love several times, and then the the, the love feeling itself is kind of dulls a little bit, and you get more. You you start fall in love with person not just only with feelings, but with uh, like you know with your kind of mind. I don't know. I have a friend who's a. Uh... He married when he was, uh, I think, 17. The reason he got married was because he got his wife pregnant. For his age at that time, he was, at least in my mind, he was more like a mature, he was mature than, you know, his other friends his age. But the thing is, he's the same age as me. His first son, he's already like a teenager. That's crazy. Not as crazy as a uh, naked woman riding a broom through the city of Moscow down Arbat Street. So, <laughs> let's see what happens with Margarita next. So Natasha uses the cream as well, and she becomes beautiful too. It attracts the attention of their neighbor, Nikolai Ivanovich. She rubs the cream on him. Now, he doesn't turn handsome. Instead, he turns into a hog, a little pig, and then she rides him around in the sky unlike Margarita who's riding a broom. As for Margarita, nobody is noticing her. She's invisible and flies around the city and down Arbat Street. She finds the despicable literary critic Lutunsky's house and enters it invisible on her broom to wreck the interior of the house. She only stops when she discovers a four-year-old boy sitting afraid by all the commotion. Feeling badly, she leaves the house and heads towards the meeting place Azazello told her. On her way, Natasha flies past, riding Nikolai Ivanovich, that pig. Natasha goes one way, and Margarita goes the other, both of them laughing merrily. Margarita arrives at a lake, where she hops off her broom to go for some skinny dipping. She's met by mermaids, and more naked witches, and other fantastical creatures, and has even brought some champagne. She is to be a queen, after all, according to Azazello. A car eventually comes, and Margarita enters it and races towards Moscow to the apartment 50, where Volin and his crew are living, and they enter the apartment without being spotted by the police, who were also now already surveilling the apartment, hoping to catch Volin and his crew. Russian police is uh, really corrupted, extremely. They're like uh, hunting for people, you know. Uh, they want to get money from uh, just uh, citizens. So it's not unusual for people to like toss a little money their way or something if they get uh, stopped on the street or something? Or If you're asking about uh, like uh, from your side, like you're a tourist and you're walking in the streets and nobody stop you. Police, it's okay. They are very correct with you. Like in Moscow, it's okay. Maybe it's a, it's no problem. If you get in trouble in the, like uh, in some small cities, it's different because maybe they don't have enough enough uh, salary. Maybe 
they don't really tell you to give them money just if you want to like uh try to get out you just uh, pass your documents and like just some money under so that like nobody sees it and then he just uh looks at it and he says like oh you're free to go it works like this most of the time you know one thing that is not about police necessarily but about azazello is that he is he's not holding a gun he's holding a long sword and i know that you know this used to be not only functional at one point it changed into more of a fashional piece i began to think this would be a really hilarious thing to continue but obviously nobody's going to carry swords anymore so they're going to carry guns i guess wouldn't it be funny if one day guns were carried as decorative pieces just like swords were can you even carry a gun in russia no we don't have uh, permission for that we have a hunting gun but actually you can you can uh, <laughs> protect yourself by if you compare with uh, america is it problem i heard about america too many guns up there and every everybody can uh, keep gun and if you say something wrong you can get you can catch a bullet <laughs> something like that but yeah so watch your mouth <laughs> you be very careful what you're doing yeah i like to take my gun out and turn it sideways you know and then you have gun no i don't have one <laughs> so like the average person in uh, russia then i guess besides hunting rifles they don't really they don't really look to have a gun right no you can you, you can buy a gun legally but it, it, I guess it will take more hustle than compared to America. But you can. I mean, like papers, you know, you, you have to get like, like all the certificates from mental institution, blah, blah, blah. Get the exam, get tested, whatever. But you can get it eventually. You can get uh, like, you know, the hunter rifle, but with maybe one, two rounds or whatever. And just like maybe small pistol, but not like AK-47. As far as I know, I don't know about it being like, you know, legal to buy a gun or own a gun. Uh, in Russia, I'm not sure about those law- laws. All I know is uh, I don't really see people, you know, carrying a concealed weapon or just owning a gun. It's mostly, as far as I know, like you know, both Uzbekistan, Russia, guns are still like associated with like gangs, gangsters. So normal people like would not carry a gun. Do you ever want to carry a gun? Like for fun? It's not a trap. <laughs> yeah, for fun. Like I don't know. Like, like do you, to, like, like you if know, you. Like if you went, like, would you want to? If you could go back to Russia or Uzbekistan, um, not really, unless it's necessary. You know what I mean? If it's like a part of the whatever city that's very criminal, and you're like, okay, you you, you do need a gun. You know, it just it would make sense to to for self protection or like to get yourself a gun, right? Yeah, but like just for no reason, I don't think I like. What's the point? How about when the devil arrives on your doorstep? <laughs> that's a pretty good reason, right? Well, let's continue on with the story and see what happens after Margarita has stepped into this apartment 50. The inside of apartment 50 is incredibly dark. The reason being that Volan doesn't like electric light, and so he has turned all these lights off. Margarita finally meets the rest of the crew. Cordoviv, Hela, the undead vampire, Behemoth, the large tomcat, and Volan gives some more specific explanations as to why they are in Moscow at this moment. Normally they are a traveling crew, 
and much like a circus does, they travel around the world and appear at moments in time in different locations. What brings Margarita to Voland, he explains, is that there is a spectacular event called the Spring Ball of the Full Moon, or the Ball of a Hundred Kings. And Margarita meets the unique qualifications to act as queen and hostess for this ball. The criteria to be a hostess is that she must have the same name, Margarita, and be a native. Margarita, do you agree to fulfill such a role? If she does, Roland will give her what she most desires. She agrees. Would you? Most people would say no, I think. But I think that a lot of us underestimate the power of hearing, I'll give you what you most desire, really would mean to you in that position. I would say probably when you get that actual offer being real, you're going to take it. I mean, why wouldn't you? But it's the devil, so that definitely comes with a price, right? This is also a scene where we do see that the devil is really not 100% good. He shows us that glowing globe next to his bedside that has some of the destruction going on in the world. And he's got his little like demons going around causing wars and stuff. And he shows Margarita that in the globe. So we can see, man, yeah, this guy is still, he's still the devil. Don't get confused about that. I like the way they describe his eyes. One is like the deep abyss of tragedy or something. And then the other one like pierces your soul. It's kind of a cool description when he does it. But one thing I noticed was like, yeah, he dislikes electric light. And I thought that was weird. Why would the devil care about electric light? Except here's the thing. With the invention of electric light, essentially darkness ceases to exist. I mean, this book's theme is really all about the balancing of good and evil. It's the balance of light and darkness. But with electric lights, the devil and his darkness is essentially getting pushed out further and further. I mean, you essentially never see the full darkness again. So his presence is, it's essentially being washed out by light. So it kind of makes sense why he would dislike. It's like a foreshadowing of his future lack of existence in a way. It's almost like it looks him in the face and says, we don't need you. We're not scared of you. We go on just fine without you. And that completely goes against the whole point. One of the whole themes of this book is that you do need the darkness. You do need the devil. You need that bad side in the world. And so this electric light basically eliminates that truth. Oh yeah, yeah, maybe. maybe. Like I, I have, like, haven't thought about that this that topic, but yeah, I guess you're right. Now, since he travels around the world like this, which country do you think has Volan's crew today? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Maybe America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be. What was the reason they visited Russia and Moscow in the first place? I think they wanted to kind of uh, see how it's changed. So I think it's been a while since they visited this place. And they wanted to look at the people and they wanted to see how they changed in general. And they were like surprised, I guess. They were, they were surprised by those changes. Like even like the lights is a good example. I mean, if we look at the events of t- like this past year of 2020 going into 2021, it seems Volan might have been just about everywhere this year. (laughs) Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if you like find out Donald Trump was part of uh, Volan's crew, his uh, modern crew, his more updated crew. Maybe he's he's the cat. (laughs) But yeah, I guess that would make sense, right? So they were like uh, running around the city, uh, the cat cat and the forgot Korovyev. They like run around the city and, and uh, kind of cause trouble. 
And some of this, uh, the government tried to cover it as a, like nonsense, public hypnosis or something because the events were so out of control, crazy, right? So like unbelievable and ridiculous. So yeah, maybe like because United States is a place for this craziness, especially this year, including this year. So maybe it's their work, right? Maybe it's them running around. America just gets so much attention. So it's hard to think of anybody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say they're, they're probably not in Russia. This stuff always happened in Russia. That's why people just don't talk about that much because they got used to it. Like, for example, people get poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> That's a normal thing. If once a year, someone gets poisoned. <laughs> Who got poisoned this year? Like the opposition guy. He was always bad mouthing Putin. Well, I mean, you can you can prove this, you know, it's... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not talking who, who did it. So people get poisoned. It's kind of like people also got used to it. And it's a big deal, but not a big deal. Two eyes fixed themselves on Margarita's face. The right, with a golden spark in its depths, piercing anyone it turned on to the bottom of his soul. And the left, empty and black, like the narrow eye of a needle, like the opening of a bottomless well of darkness and shadows. These are the eyes that stare at Margarita as she agrees to be the hostess for the ball. At Satan's Great Ball, Margarita is forced to greet everyone who emerges from this great fireplace gateway. Margarita was washed in blood and dressed with a diamond crown and a heavy necklace with a picture of a black poodle on an oval frame. Margarita greets a wide variety of guests, all pretty much horrible in their former living life or apparently evil. They all bend to kiss her knee once they meet her. Some of these famous guests include Monsieur Jacques, a confirmed forger and a traitor to his country, but quite a good alchemist. He won fame by poisoning his king's mistress, and that does not happen to everyone. Look how handsome he is! And here we have Madame Tofana, who provided poison to women who wanted to poison their husbands in the 18th century. She now walks around in a Spanish boot torture device. Next up is a French composer, and there's an Austrian composer, Johann Stauss, and Count Robert, a queen's lover, possibly Queen Elizabeth I. He poisoned his wife. And let's not forget, Frida, a woman who mysteriously happened to birth a baby boy nine months after being lured to a pantry by her boss. And one day, she took that infant to the woods and gagged him with her handkerchief. Then she buried him. Her excuse was that she could not feed the child. Gaius Caesar Caligula, one of the Roman rulers and called a mad tyrant. Messalina, third wife of the Roman Emperor Claudius, powerful, influential, and cleverly crafty, and she had a reputation for promiscuity and allegedly conspired against her husband. Last but not least, Maluta Skurotov, a leader and a loyal, cruel enforcer for Ivan the Terrible between 1565 and 1572. And that wraps up the highlights of our guest list for Satan's Ball. But you're missing some of the best players. That's what I would say to Bulgakov when he was writing this book. Okay, some of them sound pretty bad, but you're, you know, you're missing some of the most evil people in history. Hitler definitely should be on the list. Stalin. Oh, yeah, that's the funny thing, right? He couldn't put Stalin yeah, in this. couldn't put Stalin. But he wasn't dead at the time. Right, which is funny because <laughs> he would totally be <laughs> on that list. But none of these people, a lot of them at least, 
They were never 100% evil. So a lot of them seem almost like unfortunate victims. It's like, uh, you know, it's like he's, he was mocking the, the Bible or the rules, like, you know, the rules that people made that distinguish what is bad, what is good. For example, like, you know, the, for me, was the, the, the most interesting character was a Frida who killed her child. And uh, like, you know, by the Bible or the, by the rules, like all the like, people who believe in God or whatever, like, they say, like, if you kill someone, you automatically go to hell. So they do, there's no justification for your deed. You just kill someone, if even though, for example, you kill someone to save billions, right? But you still kill someone. It's a sin, go to hell. I guess the author kind of tried to mock on this. Why, if you're doing something good, but it doesn't mean, like, for example, if you do something bad, it not always necessary it means you should go to hell for that, right? There should be some kind of judgment. And, like, even the devil it's himself, he kind of, you know, underst- he understood that. It almost seemed like they weren't really being punished because the way that Behemoth, I think, was talking about him, he was like, oh, this person's really impressive and wait till you meet this person. And I was like, what if hell was totally not that way where you go and you get punished? It would make more sense, wouldn't it, that you would sort of be greeted with a handshake or something when you walk into hell? Because like it's a place for bad people. Why would the devil be mad at you for doing bad stuff? So wouldn't it make sense? Hell is like the heaven for bad people. That would really turn the, the idea upside down. I guess so. Like if, if, for example, simply put, if you are a good guy, you go to, uh, to heaven and you just do things that normal good people would do. But like if you're like, if you like drinking and gambling and women and killing, you go to this, the other version of heaven, right? Where you just do the same thing. Well, you do opposite. Now you have now you have paths now now you're like in the ha- now in you in the heaven you can do all the bad stuff and you won't be you know those are not sins anymore here. <laughs> One of the guest story affects Margarita the most, and that's the story of Frida, the woman who had killed her baby with a handkerchief and who had obviously been raped by her boss and impregnated with that child. Margarita asks why this boss wasn't in hell too. And Behemoth kind of laughs at that and says, Why would he? He didn't smother the child. The rest of the souls swarm in by the thousands, and each one bending to kiss Margarita's knee, which has begun to ache and turn blue despite the special cream Hella rubbed onto it. Margarita suffers through it like a champ. Voland finally makes his appearance. He is presented a head, and it is the head of Mikhail Alexandrovich, the writer whose head was severed by a trolley in Book 1. Volan takes the moment to brag to Mikhail's face about the events since being beheaded by the trolley, and then turns Mikhail into a cup. It gets weirder once another prominent guest appears. Baron Miguel, a man whose job involved showing foreigners the sights of Moscow in order to better spy on them. He stands before Volant. Then, Abaddon, one of the demons of destruction, steps before Baron and removes his glasses and instantly, at that same moment, Azazello shoots Baron's chest. It spurts crimson blood, and Korviv lets the blood fill the newly transformed cup. Volan drinks the blood. He transforms into handsome clothes, and then makes Margarita drink from the cup too. And with that, the party finally ends. Margarita sits with Volan, drinking a clear liquid. Whatever it is, it's not vodka. But Margarita becomes worried. She'll never get what she hoped for. Instead of asking for it, though, she decides to leave and promises Volin that 
She'll always be there if he needs her. Volan is beyond pleased. She passed the test of unselfishness. Volan rewards her. Demand one thing. She uses her wish on Frida. She asks that Frida no longer has to look and carry around that handkerchief she used to smother her baby. Voland allows Margarita the honor of granting the wish herself. And then, he tells her impatiently, please give a real demand. Her real demand. So finally, Margarita asks for her core desire, reuniting with the Master. And Voland grants it. Master appears in the room, and is even given the manuscript he had written before burning it. The manuscript that had given him so much trouble before. Volan states matter-of-factly, Manuscripts don't burn. Volan gives Margarita a small gold horseshoe covered with diamonds as a parting memento, and then she and the master are given back their old apartment, and they live together happily again. Margarita basically wins this whole, you know, deal by being unselfish. So it's like a reward. She's really loyal to Woland. She's really loyal to... Because she doesn't ask for something she wants. She's like, I did this for you and I'm not asking for anything in return. So that's like the ultimate loyalty. Americans are kind of known for, or they're stereotyped as having this unbending nationalistic loyalty. So what about Russians? Do you, do they generally have the same sense of oh, strong yeah. nationalism? Oh, yeah. It's pretty strong. But like, you know, how would you, what, what would be like core, I guess, like how would you describe a nationalistic person? Like what would be their core attributes? Stubbornness, stubbornness with okay. uh, against like faults, right? Yeah. So they defend even the things that seem clearly wrong. Yeah, yeah. Same thing. Dude, like to give you an example, it was the whole like few years back. You know, the whole Crimea. There were like obviously when the like the Westerners they look at at this and like oh you know it's just you're sending a bunch of troops and then you just pretty much you know forcing. Yeah, you just kill. You just kill people, right? Uh, you just massacre, whatever you want to call it. But then there were uh, a couple of Russian Russian guys at this bar, and I had this guy from uh, the sa- actually the same guy who you know he punched his fist on the table at my wedding. So yeah, so he was uh, he started talking to those guys, and for some reason this this topic political topic came up, and then so and he was like really critical of the Russia's actions towards Crimea. But then those two Russian guys, they were like really defensive, like the stubbornness and what the all those uh, qualities that you just listed that come with it. So that was, I guess, a good real life example of nationalism. But like, no, this is kind of funny that you brought it up, right? United States and Russia, right? Because like I can kind of understand maybe why Russia has such a strong sense of nationalism because they've lived there for centuries, for many years thousands of years up. but like united states is uh, mostly the land of immigrants right so like why would americans have such a strong sense of nationalism you know compared to russia like for a new country i mean the, when you're when it's new and it's yours i guess the passion is strong yeah russia it is a very unique place and they've gone through a lot of hardships over their land so it's pretty maybe ingrained in there yeah they mostly they probably because of the history the history made them like this. It's kind of like they like they have to be that nationalistic in order to you know to stay strong. We revisit Pontius Pilate. Pilate is talking to Aphranius, head of his secret police. They speak about a character barely mentioned in this book thus far, 
Yedua of Carrion, aka Judas. As we remember, in this story, Judas had tricked Yeshua into speaking badly about the authorities, which gets him arrested. In return, he is to receive a large sum of money. There is a plot to murder Yedua of Carrion, and Pontius Pilate wants Aphranius to ensure that this murder doesn't happen, wink wink. When Aphranius leaves, Pilate sits with his pet dog and his headache returns. And meanwhile, Aphranius meets with a woman named Nisa to arrange plans for the night. Nisa finds Yedua in a crowd and lures him away after her. He is confused to see her there, but he follows her anyway to the olive grove outside the city. When he gets there, two shadowy men appear. They take his money and stab him to death. A third figure emerges from the shadows and rides off in a different direction of the assassins. Suddenly, we're back in Pilate's bedroom. He has moved his bed into the moonlight and dreams of Yeshua. In the dream, Yeshua and Pilate discuss cowardice, something Pilate feels deeply about himself. He is awoken out of his peaceful sleep to meet with Ephranius, and a person is brought before Pilate, Matthew Levy, one of the disciples of Yeshua. Pilate and Matthew speak alone, and Matthew looks the following, quote, About 40 years old, was black, ragged, covered with caked mud with a wolf-like glowering look, unquote. Levy clearly hates Pilate, and Pilate, in efforts to get the stubborn wild man to speak cooperatively, talks to him almost like one would to a child. Levy is not intimidated by Pilate and wishes for nothing from him. Instead, he tells him, quote, You will be afraid of me. It will not be too easy for you to look me in the face after you killed him, unquote. Pilate thinks Matthew failed to learn from Yeshua correctly. Matthew wants to kill Yedua and tells Pilate so. Pilate tells him that's impossible because Pilate already killed him. And, and I like I like the the way like kind of like he asked the guy to kill the Judas right <laughs> you know <laughs> without any like like direct he didn't kind of point it out you should kill him he was he said like I would prefer right if like Judas won like you know they could have just talked straight to each other like please kill him because no one could hear them right so KGB style didn't Putin come from the KGB party. I mean, is that guy going to ever leave? <laughs> is he ever going to get out of uh, office? Or is he just pretty much going to be there until he dies of old age? Mm, I would say, like, us teenagers, uh, we don't really like uh, nowadays uh, political system and, uh, like, put in. Because, like, most of us, we kind of looking for uh, something new. Because Putin has been, like, a really long time on the role of president. And so we need some changes. Back in Moscow, the police are finally discovering some of the answers they've been looking for as people begin to come in and provide witness accounts of the events of the previous days. Gaps in the story get filled, and they visit apartment 50 prepared with lassos and chloroform so that they can arrest the crew. They find Azazello and Behemoth, but after a hilariously ineffective gunfight, even Behemoth issuing a challenge of a duel, they slip away, leaving the apartment in flames. It's sunset, 
And Voland and Azazello look out upon the city of Moscow privately, high up on a balcony in one of the towers. Matthew Levy suddenly appears and speaks to Voland, unlike anyone has in this story thus far. And he clearly thinks that Voland is a devil of pure evil. He is there to speak on behalf of Yeshua. And the message is for Voland to give Margarita and Master peace. He's a disciple of Jesus, and I really think that's the most idiotic thing I ever heard. This guy sounds like the worst disciple ever. <laughs> like I don't get it. <laughs> it's like it's like they met like the day before, right? <laughs> so the Jesus really had no influence <laughs> whatever at that person. This guy just seems to <laughs> didn't be like teach making me all the wrong decisions and he keeps being like put in good places. Like he he stole the knife. He was planning on killing Jesus. He just seems to be like kind of like a guy that's not really good to follow. He's like, this guy just seems like a, like a fanatic rather than the typical disciple. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's like he was looking for some meaning in his life. He heard something Jesus said one day. He's like, that's it. And he ran off before like Jesus could explain like the other rules to him or something. Because the way he talks to the devil is like the way, man, he just doesn't care. And the way he talks to Pilate is the same way. He's just like, you guys are dumb. Everyone's dumb. Like, you're going to rot and burn. And, and I have the one true way. But he's so viciously angry about it. And the fact that he had wanted to stab Jesus, he wanted to kill Judah. I mean, none of these are very Christian ideas, right? So how could he be like this lead disciple? He's like the spokesperson. He's coming down to talk to the devil. And he's like, Hey, I'm here for Jesus. Like, why would you pick this guy? There's like a thousand other people you could choose except for this guy. He's like the freakiest, most unstable sounding one. Why is he the, the guy? But maybe that's the whole thing, right? You know, what they talk about in the Bible, right? So like uh, human, like, there's, uh, we're all humans, right? So uh, sooner or later, no matter how you know, innocent you are or pure, you're gonna have like you're gonna make mistakes and you're gonna like you know make wrong decisions in your life, uh, you know. And I guess maybe this, the main message was that okay, you can still do all this you know bad stuff and make all those horrible mistakes, but at the end, if you do it for like the right reasons, you will get accepted to you know the kingdom of heaven. Or yeah, but isn't that like highly subjective, right? I mean, Stalin could say the same thing. I mean, the whole thing is kind of funny. Like, the reason Matthew was there in the first place is because Jesus read the manuscript of the Master, and he liked it so much that he says, yeah, you know, give Master and Margarita peace. Just give them peace. So it's like, I mean, when Jesus reads your stuff and likes it, I mean, you're pretty much, you're pretty much golden. You're pretty much good forever. Because honestly, uh, you know, Yeshua and Voland, they don't seem too different. It's almost like Voland is the same, just on the other end of the spectrum. And like, if you look at what he says to Matthew here, I'll read it. Quote, Would you be kind enough to give me some thought on this? What would your good be doing if there were no evil? And what would the earth look like if shadows disappeared from it? All the shadows are cast by objects and people. There is a shadow on my sword. But there are also shadows of trees and living creatures. Would you like to denude the earth of all the trees and all the living beings in order to satisfy your fantasies of rejoicing in the naked light? You are a fool. We speak different languages, but this does not change the things we speak about. Unquote. So 
you know, this seems to reach back also to the idea that they were talking about with uh, Yeshua in chapter two, when Pilate and Yeshua were talking about all men being good. And it seems that, you know, almost like Yeshua and Voland are almost on the same team and at least very cooperative towards each other, not, you know, the pure enemies that you often think of, which is kind of weird if that's real, right? <laughs> but even Matthew says, you know, that Yeshua asks him to provide the master with peace, not demands. And so watching, you know, that conversation near the end is kind of thought provoking, I guess. After a long sleep, Master and Margarita are feeling replenished, but still dressed in their previous outfits. Margarita, still naked and in a black robe, as she says, quote, I like speed and nakedness, unquote. Master doubts that she should be with him, and Margarita counters this by putting her faith that Volan will make things well for them. Azazello appears in their home and gives them some special wine to drink, the same that Pontius Pilate drank. They toast to Volan's health, but immediately the drink takes seemingly a deathly-like effect on them, and they collapse. But they don't die. Not really. They rise again, fully awake and well. They were simply divorced from their earthly bodies. Seems like dying to me. While they were asleep, Azazello arranges everything so that the rest of the real world will find them and assume they've died of natural causes. For example, Margarita's body is back in her home, dead of a heart attack. Master is actually able to bring along his manuscripts because in fact he has memorized the whole thing. The whole thing. Three black horses take them to their next location. The master makes sure that he stops by the hospital clinic so that he could say goodbye to homeless. With everybody joining Volan finally, they get on their black horses and ride off out of Moscow, out of the real world. Margarita now watches as the members of the crew and Volan himself transform back into their original forms. Korovev turns into this knight with a never smiling face and Behemoth transforms into a slender youth, a demon, and the best jester that has ever existed in the world. Azazello, with a gleaming steel of armor. His fang is gone, he has two eyes, he is the killer demon. Even the master changed. His hair was white and wore boots that glimmered with stars. In the end, they arrive at a wasteland where there is a single armchair and a man sitting and a dog beside him. It's Pontius Pilate, who has been sitting there for nearly 2,000 years only to awake when the moon is full. Master walks to him and says, You are free. You are free. He waits for you. Volan leaves, and Master and Margarita are left in eternal peace. The End Well, that does it for today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Igor Roman Bayer Max for discussing this book with me. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe and rate the show and follow us as an official paperbacker. You'll find the show on iTunes and Google Podcasts, and you can also contact us at our website, paperbacker.netlify.app. You can also find us on Twitter, paperbackerp, while we read the world. This is Paperbacker Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.